This episode of Idea Grave is brought to you by Shack Flavored Soda, Reese's Brand Edible Wax, and Brennan's Lack of Weed. What else you got there? Dole Brand Bananas, live from Honduras. Mm. This episode is brought to you by The Sound of Banana Eating, The Sound of Reese's Pieces Peanut Butter Cups Being Opened, and The Sound of Giant Shack Flavored Cola. Ah, I feel like I could break the backboard on this. <laughs> uh, I, I had the like me and Crawford always talk about, uh, you know how Shaq used to do the the commercials for the icy hot back patch. <laughs> and I think I left television by the time <laughs> that stuff started coming. So the Shaq would always do the the commercials for the icy hot back patches because whatever. And uh, they just show like these these shots of him with his hands on his on his hips with like the the back patch on his back. Whoa! And I I always just imagined like the shack sized back patch, like a guy walking up and pulling it off of him, and then like the scale changing and him just wrapping it himself around it like a blanket. <laughs> you could use it as a thermal him. pad if you're going camping. You just shake the. I got my shack patch, guys. I don't need a sleeping bag. Shack sized icy hot back patch. Brought to you by Shack Patch. Shack brand Shack Patch. Yeah, that, I don't even know if that's a dated reference. Is he retired and stuff yet? Last time I saw Shack, he was doing that Versus show where he'd get like Michael, Michael Phelps and he'd challenge him to a swimming contest. Yeah, which was like. That just... he'd be like, oh, you know what, guys? I can't even swim. And he's all fat <laughs> and stuff. And <laughs> yeah, he, let, uh, he, did, like, he boxed like Sugar Ray Leonard, I think, in one of them. I thought that was such a strange concept for a show. And brave, because like he would totally get slaughtered in every episode. Yeah, and his the whole uh, the whole idea was I'm Shaq and I could do anything. Like yeah. I'm good at every sport. Yeah, but really, he, it turned out he was not good at any sport. And he was a good sport at the end. Yeah. He would just laugh it off after he does terrible in each of the events. <laughs> I still got my billions. Still got, still got my billions in my custom Jesse James motorcycle. <laughs> He rides around on a giant custom-made motorcycle that's like three times as big as that, a regular From that dude from Monster Garage? <laughs> the guy that married Sandra Bullock <laughs> and then divorced her. They they were married? Really? Yeah. That's what's strange. Well, I think. I mean, I don't follow this stuff very closely. I kind of hear bits and pieces and I go, oh, that so, makes that makes sense. So you're just hoping it's true. You're kind of thinking in the It kind of makes sense. It seems like Sandra Bullock was... She went through that uh, that period where she wasn't kind of fam- she wasn't famous anymore. So she married She's like a old. weird Fred yeah. Dursk looking Fred Durst looking dude. Reality show. Reality show guy. Custom motorcycle builder. Yeah. Reality shows. What a strange world. It's just neat to see how the the au courant celebrities shift all the time. Yeah. Like the next wave <clears throat> of celebrities are going to be people who are bloggers and stuff. Oh yeah. On television and it's it's so interesting like you never think you're going to be part of the generation that gets old and you're not with it anymore and you can't follow culture. Yeah. But it's going to happen to us, right? We're going to get old and we're going to be going like who is this person and why are they famous? Like, oh, she's got a really famous blog. She cover she eats like spaghetti and meatballs every day at nine o'clock she's, and she's got an amazing tumbler. <laughs> Her tumbler's incredible. <laughs> well, no, even that in that uh that recent 
the YouTube show fiasco that I was telling you about earlier and that is on Boing Boing and Gawker. Start from the beginning of that story. Yeah, they were gonna they were gonna do this big um, broadcast game jam, which is uh, for the uninitiated, it's like a time sensitive in Toronto here. No, no, no. It was in uh, it was in San Francisco, I believe. Oh, crazy! Um, so she traveled to it. Yeah, yeah. She, uh, my friend's always kind of like globetrotter that way. She always seems to be somewhere different, uh, speaking at conferences and stuff like that. But she was chosen along with like ten or eleven other developers to participate in this game jam, and the idea was it was going to be a few developers and then a few YouTube celebrities on a, on a team, and they would all try and, you know, the YouTubers would kind of give in to the fact that they're not good coders, so they would have to do, like, voiceovers and design or, like, just help with the general idea and leave it up to the developers to make it a reality, which is, like, a really good idea. Yeah. And it definitely is a way to kind of uh, showcase the, the difficulty and, like, the intricate... Uh, development process of an indie game right like it's mm. not all glamorous or anything it's pr- pretty hard and so really quickly those wh- are really intense jams yeah and some of them are really super specific like there was one called tower jam where the idea was to create uh, a game based on your favorite uh, captured secondary character so like you know on the second half of ocarina of time zelda is just in that pink crystal mm. <laughs> she can't say or do anything mm-hmm. what if you made a game that was like ma- gave you that feeling the feeling of like being a participant in the beginning, but then being completely helpless and useless for the rest of the game. Jesus. Yeah, and like everyone had to come up with their ideas. But anyways, uh, I digress. This this was going to be like just a really great kind of high-budget production that was going to be put on YouTube in parts, sort of been run as a series to try and get people into the indie game development world. But what happened was a crazy advertisement for Mountain Dew. And, uh, so Mountain Dew was the sponsor, Mountain and they Dew, took it over? Well, Mountain Dew became the sponsor. I think that was one of the problems. And then the, the liaison between PepsiCo and the production company that was running the, the game jam, uh, he, he somehow wound up, wound up being in the driver's seat. Somehow, with all the directors and producers there, he ended up being the guy, this dude who doesn't work for Pepsi or the production company. He's just a weird liaison who runs his own company that just does that he got control of the shoot and then what followed was just advertisements for Mountain Dew and then him trying to make the female cast members feel exceptionally uncomfortable and create drama it very quickly turned from documentary into like reality show where he they were asked to sign a contract that said the production company could re-edit any of the footage in any way that they chose in order to manufacture drama where it wasn't. And that the, the contract also said that they could never say anything about it. They could never say anything bad about the game jam or the production company or Pepsi ever. Right. And, it, it, they, and so this guy is being put in charge of the game jam, doesn't have any background in video games, but he is being paid as both a producer and somebody who's out there to make sure that Mountain Dew gets their their product place right and it, he started to, <laughs> he to co- corrupt it yeah and instead of this being a game jam it, you know they spent more time he was worried about how they were holding the mountain dew cans and like <laughs> the faces they were making when they took long sips of their mountain dew and he went as far as banning anything that wasn't water or mountain dew from the set so, so what you, if you don't drink mountain dew you got to drink to water and slowly dehydrate a lot like like uh one of them said you know developers rely on coffee it's like their mana they need that mana coffee to keep going, and they said that they couldn't drink it on set. They had to go over off camera into this little dark corner to drink coffee, and they had to leave their station. 
And then, like, you know, just one problem after another. All the computers had uh, pirated versions of Premiere on them mm. and stuff like that. So they all started crashing and getting crazy malware. And so they had to stop the game jam. It took, like, three hours for them to... Was that, was that uh, the producer's fault, or did they have their own machines there? They, uh, they must have bought machines for uh, specifically for it. And then rather than have to pay Adobe for a bunch of Premiere licenses because they're never going to show Adobe on screen, like Premiere running... Fuck it, we'll just pirate it. But then whoever did it, obviously, like you know, doesn't know how to use torrents or find like safe torrents, and all, most of the computers just ended up completely fucked with malware. Oh, crazy. Slowed it down, and they only got. I hope. You know what the saving grace might be? What? That might end up being a more interesting documentary in well, the end, if since everything. Yeah. Went so bad. what what happened for everyone listening who like hasn't read this story yet is eventually after this Pepsi Pepsi man tried to incite all this drama by like getting in people's faces and sort of like asking leading questions about female developers and whether or not they're a hindrance to the team. Um, you know, he was running around and telling people they couldn't wear nail polish because it was messing up the Mountain Dew brand and uh, told Zoe to cover <laughs> what? her. Yep. Mountain Dew doesn't like nail polish? Not on a guy, I guess. A guy was wearing <laughs> nail polish and, th- and they said, no, you can't do that. And then they tried to get Zoe to cover her Mountain tattoos. Mountain Dew's a little uncomfortable with your nail polish we- there, Scott. <laughs> yeah, I think you better uh, take that off. And so eventually... Luckily, Mountain Dew dissolves nail polish. <laughs> Bazing. They, uh, they got so fed up, the entire cast walked. They, they saw what was happening, on the, and on day one of the four days blocked off to shoot, they all walked off the set and wouldn't come back and just left. Some of them drove out of the city, and some of them just went to go party elsewhere, and that was it. Mm. And apparently, this thing cost like $400,000. It was a, almost a half-million-dollar production, and they probably have nothing usable out of it. And the guy got fired. This Pepsi man yeah. got fired, but it still wasn't enough. Um, yeah, they just, they crossed the line too many yeah. times and pushed these developers who were like, you know, trying to make them into these reality stars and to like coach them to just like smile and like stare into the camera and stuff like that. Not organic at all and not what the event should have been about in the first place. It's a creepy thing. I think the only saving grace is that um, this is going to continue to happen. Every time... Um, an existing like producer tries to control and like come up with like these weird creepy overlaps where you monetize something that's grown out of the internet and try yeah. to turn it into a corporate thing that you can make money on. Yeah. It's always a disaster. It doesn't fit because like what the thing, the thing they don't understand is like they think that they can turn everything into the internet into television. Yeah. And the difference is that television was invented for the advertisements the shows only existed on television to to co-opt you into like watching the advertisements. Yeah, that's why they were invented. That's why they were written. Yeah, the internet is a connection medium. It's meant to um, bring people connections. It's a two-way street. It's not just a stream, right? Yeah, and so you can't you can't like produce reality uh, events in the same way. Yeah. And I remember it, it just reminded me. I, I accidentally walked into a, a rap party for a TV show. I won't say the name of which one, but uh, I ended up talking to the president of the production company, who is sort of like an old goat. And uh, you know, he was buying me beers, so I was listening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we were talking about like new media and the internet. And you know, I asked him about streaming television services mm-hmm. and like you know, commercial free and ad free. And he was dead convinced 
that the internet and streaming video were just a fad. It's a fad. Yeah, he said people are always going to want TV. Those people who love TV and love to just sit down and turn their favorite channel on are always going to be around, and they're always going to want something from us. Has he ever seen playlists on YouTube? You just hit play, and it'll show you stuff. Justin TV. You can pick your favorite show and just have it play all the episodes in a random order, right? Like there, You can get all the convenience of mindless entertainment, from the internet without any of the fucking bullshit advertisements yeah. that you have to deal with. That's that's also TV thinking, imagining that it's a walled garden that him and his buddies can decide what the content is and they can decide, they can be the tastemakers. Yeah. But the thing is, like, the internet doesn't work that way, right? The internet doesn't care about your rules, right? No, not so at he all. So can, he can think to himself, well... You know, obviously the Simpsons can only come on once a day in each network zone because we don't want to oversaturate the market and all these different like TV thinking terms. Some people just want to watch like, the Simpsons. Some people only want to watch the Simpsons, dude. And there's a net- if you don't give them what they want, they're just going to make their own channel because exactly. there's no uh, policing. On the and internet. it's gotten so quick now that uh, it's not even that I, wor- I I have to worry about something being spoiled or feel out of the loop. Like... Game of Thrones is Sunday. It'll show at what, like 10 o'clock? By 11, uh, maybe 11.15 after someone's had like time to quickly encode it, there'll be a pirated version on Pirate Bay for me to download. So I'll watch it maybe an hour after my friends Yeah, who have cable, which is none of them. I don't think and a single one of them has the, HBO. And you think to yourself, you know, what comes after that? It, the, the producers who have a track record, like Vince Gilligan, if he wanted to, after Breaking Bad, he can go direct to the fans now, and I'll give him like $25 oh, 100%. directly for him to make his next show. He doesn't need to go to AMC anymore. No, not at all. Like, once you've proven yourself with a show like Breaking Bad or Game of Thrones, you can, you're completely liberated. Yeah. Um, and the I only think thing he that's made the back is is old habits. He made a mistake by, by sticking with AMC for the, the Saul Goodman spinoff, mm. because I think if he would have just done the smart thing and gone Netflix exclusive, which they would have had him for sure. Netflix would have paid for that show in a heartbeat yeah. with how successful Breaking Bad is. You wouldn't even have to negotiate with them. Yeah. Uh, he could have done whatever he wanted, right. fucking whatever he wanted. And, and what a fucking blessing it would have been for traditional terrestrial television fans of Breaking Bad because the people who are watching it on television are completely missing out on the vibe of the show, I think. I watched, oh, yeah. I watched one episode... I think it was the finale because I couldn't wait for it to to stream. Right. And the whole pacing of the show is disrupted by advertising because they don't even try to make um, product placements or advertisements that'll fit the vibe of the show. Oh, no. Like, it'll even. just, I'll just, it'll be a really tense moment. And it's like, downy. It away. <laughs> downy, bright, bright sunshine, hang your laundry in the field, yada, yada, yada. Yeah, just complete bullshit. And also, I mean, some. Uh, kind of more traditional TV shows will will have scripts that um, reflect that kind of up and down pacing where you have to like create pre pre commercial tension and then yeah. you have to like re- resolve that reality tension. shows are very good at that if you watch Survivor or whatever it's kind of breaking broken up into two or three minute chunks yeah and they 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 write it that way but Breaking Bad being sort of a serial drama that Vince Gilligan in the end, really intends for you to watch ad-free. Like, he mm-hmm. wants you to watch the DVDs so that the pacing, it's a, a, a whole hour of that build-up to the, the, like, resolution or just to, like, further the conflict. It's not this, like, constant, like, you get into the world, you get into the world, you get into the world, and then five minutes later, you're like, 
fuck. And you turn off and you leave the room for a second mm. waiting for the commercials to be finished. Yeah. I find that to be an intolerable part of watching TV. And any time mm. that I would try and watch a show now on like at someone's house, I'm just like, I can't believe that you have to put up with this. Like a 20 minute, a 22 minute show has eight solid minutes of fucking commercials. The yeah. same ones over and over and over of things we don't ever want to buy. And ever. it's become like a narcotic. I mean, those um, commercial producers have developed a style of editing and music and writing that's completely hypnotic. Yeah. Like when I go home to the suburbs to visit my parents, I make a strict rule as soon as I come into the fucking house. I'm like, the TV goes off because it hits me, you know? I'm sitting on the couch trying to like see relatives that I haven't talked to in four months. And it's just in the corner, and it, like, sucks everybody's eyeballs Hypnotoad. Yeah, and then you realize everybody's staring watching television instead of talking to one another. It's just like, click. That's why I sort of hate going home for Christmas, because, uh, you know, my mom and stepdad are avid TV watchers, Mm. and they have a giant million-inch fucking TV on one wall. Where, like, the centerpiece of their entire home is this massive TV, and it's always on. It's just on. And so at Christmas, we're all sitting around trying to talk... And constantly on one side of the room in this like pretty tiny room, there's just like UFC or just some bullshit streaming like, you know, man versus food. One Christmas, it was man versus food. it was a man marathon. versus food marathon nonstop all Christmas. Some dude trying to eat all the most disgusting shit without dying. I got stuck in the reality show K-hole one Christmas Eve because uh, there was a party going on. And I couldn't end up, I didn't end up getting a ride to it. And whenever I'm in the suburbs, I'm completely stranded because there's no transit. And um, so I was, I was stuck at home watching TV and it was the Storage Wars marathon. And I didn't know what, I didn't know what Storage Wars was. And I saw every episode and became intimately connected to that show. And And we watched it a ton. This bizarre psychedelic experience where I was drifting in and out of consciousness and trying to place like whether i had seen the current episode that was playing or whether it was it was new because they're all so similar and they have all the same yeah same vibe and it goes in and out in and out of the commercials and then you introduced the whole house to that show and we all all started watching it i came back completely shell-shocked like have you seen storage wars yep (laughs) uh let him have what's daryl bidden what's daryl bidden uh let him have it yep (laughs) Oh man, what a fucking great show that is! I and then I, I, much like everything on television, you know how I was, I was saying that I don't know if Sandra Bullock and Jesse James right, are right. still going. There's all these little like blips of pop culture that I hear in other people's conversations, and it kind of gives me an update of what's going on in the real world, right, or the mainstream world. And Storage Wars is the same way. Like I had that one rendezvous where I saw like every Storage Wars episode and then left it completely. And then there was a little blip where you'd hear people out in the rest of the world like it's spreading. You know, yeah. like, oh, it's getting more popular. I'm starting to hear other people talk about Storage Wars and go, yep, and yeah. stuff like that. And then, uh, you know, th- that controversy where the the yep guy he left the show and then he he aired all the dirty laundry. He was he was like, Star Wars was completely rigged. It was completely rigged. Of course, they would pay me my money, and they would they would seed the vaults with interesting stuff for us to find. It's like no dude, shit. Every but every reality show is rigged. Yeah. don't you know that? That's what it. That's what the the open secret is. It's yeah. It's not reality. Reality is like a brand, right? It's mm. it has nothing to do with some actual assemblance of real ideas. Yeah. It's, 
completely falsified. And from the beginning, I can't like even those early uh, reality shows in the nineties, mm. like uh, what's the MTV one? Uh, real world. The real world. Yeah. yeah. All those early real worlds is just fucking manufactured garbage. You can tell too. You can tell it's just like people don't talk like this. People don't yeah. act like this. Mm-hmm. It's just a. It's just a, a more subtle sitcom. That's all. Yeah. The, and that goes back to what I was saying about um, TV thinking and that game jam. Right? Is that yeah. the people who are reality show television producers they think they get the internet. And they think that they can go on the internet and manufacture stuff the same way they do on television and it'll work. But like you said, it's a two-way medium. So immediately, as soon as your your audience reaches above a thousand people, the chances of somebody calling bullshit are one hundred percent. They basically. start to to grow exponentially. And like also that kind of advertising, that like in your face advertising. Because it's like it's one thing if like Mountain Dew has the side ads or has like a front end ad on the video or something like that. Sure. This is like full on. They designed the set to look all Mountain Dew edgy and with giant Mountain Dew signs. And they like designed all of the, the costumes and stuff like that to be like color coded with like color coded areas. It was all just very like game show, like Mm. Nickelodeon game show looking. Yeah. Shameless promotion. Just, Not even caring, like fucking Mountain Dew. Everybody on set's drinking Mountain Dew, man. Yeah, that's fucking disgusting. No one wants that anymore. No one's gonna tolerate that on the internet. You're just gonna be like, I don't have to watch this. I don't have to watch this fucking calculated ad for Mountain Dew. I'm gonna go watch something that's far more interesting. Right. And, and I mean, there is an elegant way to do it. I mean, if you were hosting a show and you were acknowledging your sponsors, people are educated now enough that they know you can't do stuff for free. Yeah. So you can say like, we'd like to acknowledge Mountain Dew gave us money to put this event on and we've got their logo and you know, everybody go out and buy a case of Mountain Dew. That's all you need. You know, I th- and I think uh, Scott Ackerman and Zach Galifianakis, cause I mean, Scott Ackerman, With the vodka commercials. Yeah. Well, they, they, uh, Scott Ackerman writes between two ferns, right? Like he writes and produces between two ferns oh, with Zach Galifianakis. Yeah. And so each respectively on comedy, bang, bang, He'll do like just those, you know, those ads for Audible or for like Stamps.com and make them funny, just like rambling and coherent. Duncan Trussell's amazing at that too. Yeah, and then Zach Galifianakis will be like, he'll be actually sponsored by like Old Spice or whatever deodorant he is, and it will come down on a string, and he'll kind of just like look at it awkwardly. It's like that comedic timing isn't broken up. It's just nice, integrated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just like being aware of the fact that advertising is just like a necessity to pay for stuff yeah and it's funny that the the brands are willing to allow comedians to do that because it's way easier to do the ironic ad than it is to do the serious stuff that seems like for serious shows they want you to seriously push the product like if the if somebody sponsors the ufc they want it to have like the same kind of hardcore because this is a different audience yeah so you need to be serious about your 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 cleaning choices you need to be serious about your deodorant blood pumping ufc serious for fifth for fifth round clean (laughs) for championship clean yeah (laughs) (laughs) tied for championship clean oh man the only corn nuts with big enough kernels to get into the octagon or whatever the fuck they (laughs) say all to satisfy your fucking cravings (laughs) Head on down to Circle K and fuck one. (laughs) Put this in your ass. Oh, yeah. 
But I don't know. Talking to that, talking to the old TV goat really gave me a perspective of like, yeah, the the those baby boomers and the people who grew up and like kind of have made their whole lives contingent on advertising on TV and like how to work that in. They really think that the internet's just like gonna go away mm. before they die. They yeah. think that they they're gonna have their heyday again. Like in the next couple of years, people are gonna be like, "Yeah, eh, this internet thing's fucking boring." And just yeah. <laughs> let's go back and watch our TV, guys. Mm-hmm. Let's plug the old cable yeah, in. Yeah, and it's it's such a a, a byproduct of a, a self centered kind of baby boomer culture, I think, because you just you just have to have a little bit of hubris when. Um, you have to have a little bit of humility when you look back on the course of technological history and how every generation thought that their toys were going to continue on forever. Yeah. And then the new generation comes and says like, we don't care about it anymore. And they sweep it away. Yeah. It's going to happen again. You have a, a generation of millennials that grew up with the internet and they understand that it's a two way street and they can ignore and get the content that they like at leisure. Yeah. Um, and there's always a way to circumvent any bullshit. Yes. Like you can get ad blocker. You can do like they're even as far back as I can remember. As soon as there were open source browsers or browsers that could have like add-ons or apps, there were things that would just go and forcibly remove any clickable ads. Right. So it would just blank out all the ads on every page. So if like, you really don't want to stare at all this shitty, like, Ron Jeremy can make your penis bigger in six days, mm. you can fucking turn that off. Yeah. Which is something you can't when I got do that anywhere blocker, else. It was like a weight was lifted off my chest. Yeah. Because honestly, YouTube and Google, everybody were complicit in, like, destroying the internet experience. It's, yeah. You couldn't watch YouTube anymore. It's pretty bad. There was a the front roll ad completely inappropriately before any content that you clicked on. I don't have ad blocker right now, and so I'm like dealing with uh, with ad YouTube, and it's I get like a I think an extremely bad experience. I don't know if it's something about like my my browsing habits or something like that, but I seem to get an inordinate number of like front roll ads, and also sometimes like I'll throw a. Uh, a full album on like mm. the other day I was listening to uh weave or no uh, to a Wu-Tang album mm-hmm. and a weaves video came on like the Toronto band weaves the entire video played as an as advertisement an it was halfway th- it was like yeah. there were there were like four or five ads squeezed in yeah. to the full album and, and I don't understand e- the they were weaves whole guy. song yeah I don't understand the point of view of the weaves people cuz they paid money to do that and well, I think it was on, think, on uh, Groove Shark, the way it works, they'll have an interruption too. Like you're in the middle of your playlist and I'll go like, hi, uh, I'm Duncan Edwards and I would like you to listen to my album on Groove Shark. Thank you. And you're like, I, you've just guaranteed that I will never listen to never. your album, man. And if you, if you paid me, I wouldn't listen to it because like by principle, you wasted my time. So yeah. I hate you now. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really like, you have to be careful with that kind of interruption. Yeah. And just, you know, it's it's not as offensive when it's a 15-second thing, right? Like, if mm-hmm. I'm listening to a whole album, it's like an hour of content, and I get the odd 15-second interruption. Yeah, like, it could, it say it kept track that, like, you haven't heard an ad in 25 minutes. Yeah, and, and like, it just gave, a break. gave me one. But when it's, it's routinely interrupting something that I'm watching with three to four-minute ads that are just like people's music videos or crazy, like, calculated ads for something else, mm-hmm. just like... 
I'm more likely to just walk over and turn that content off entirely. Yeah. I'll just fucking go on to the next thing because I'm not going to put up with that. Like, yeah. Rather play video games or... Yeah. I mean, there's too much competition. Yeah, that's the thing. You, They really have to make that integrated advertising the standard. You have to have or a Or get rid of it altogether. There, the new wave of marketers, like if you listen to uh, Seth Godin's stuff, he's encouraging all the marketers to just abandon advertising altogether. Right. And instead go into product uh, design. Because, like, the design is the marketing. Like, if you think of anything that you buy, like, young people buy, right? it all comes down to uh, the design is the marketing. Like, Oculus Rift doesn't have any advertisements. The reason you know about Oculus Rift is because it's cool and people talk about cool stuff. Right. Except now it's been bought by Facebook and it's going to be... Uh, well, turned, in, turned into something that it was never meant to be. I am so confused by perhaps, that acquisition. I, I, I don't understand it. I think that that guy who invented it, that kid that invented it, is going to take that $2 billion and, and make other cool stuff. See, one of the things, too, is that I have, I have had a few friends say, oh, like, this, it's a huge blow to video games that this, like, VR system that was designed for gaming and to purport to be, like, all open source and, like, easy to develop for is now being bought by this corporate giant social media you also don't exactly know what uh somebody like mark zuckerberg would do though maybe he he bought the company under the pretense that he's just going to continue to let the kid develop it it the way he's doing right he's just like we're gonna make sure that you have money backing because that's where what his background is like mark zuckerberg invented something cool and then he used the uh, financial leverage to scale it up yeah, and maybe he's just allowing a, a younger developer to do the same. And thing. I, I wouldn't be worried either way because, uh, you know, Sony already announced that they're they're releasing their VR helmet, and you can fucking bet your button that Xbox is working on one too. Mm-hmm. And with their kind of corporate money and like competition, the spirit of competition between those two companies is yeah. going to drive a product that's going to come out for both yeah. the systems that is better than the Oculus Rift could have ever been in that amount oh, of time. Oh, totally. And you look at the already existing patents for Xbox, how the Xbox One can track the movements of like a, a full-scale body. Yeah, It yeah. can easily be scaled down to track your, your eye movements. That would be much simpler to do than... Yeah, being able to see somebody's pulse and stuff in a in a camera, an HD camera. Yeah, and so like, let Facebook do whatever they're gonna do with the Oculus Rift if they if they want to make some kind of crazy, uh, you know, wearable version of Facebook, then like let them do it. I'm not gonna participate in that, but I, like I I have a feeling that that's not the course of it. I think that Facebook's issue is that they've been really struggling to monetize Facebook. Yeah, and so I think that their their new plan is like take the cachet that they have now, and figure out ways to make relationships with legitimate project products. Mm-hmm. And I think that like investing in virtual reality for games and stuff that's a smarter bet than saying that we're ever going to figure out how to make money off of allowing people to do microblogging on our yeah. And networks. as close as they've gotten with like ad revenue and like paid placement ads, which I'm sure they make decent money off of yeah honestly because like you know they're paying for the hosting anyways so they might as well slap a couple ads on the screen targeted at you and get some money for the clicks but it's never going to be it's never going to make that kind of crazy money compared to some you know grand theft auto 5 made a fucking billion dollars in three days yeah you think that's going to be the last video game to ever make three a billion dollars in three days nope Next Grand Theft Auto is around the corner. A couple of years down the road, they'll yeah. probably do it, and it'll mm-hmm. 
So that's the you want to get into a big budget industry. Gaming is a good one. It's even better than movies now. When's the last time a movie made a billion dollars in three days? Yeah. Ever has that ever happened? Has no. a movie ever made over a billion dollars in a no. weekend? Things are shifting. Not. Yeah. Things are shifting, and I, I don't know. <sighs> Fucking thank God, you know, because it's so exciting that uh, we're we're in an era where you don't have to put up with stuff that bothers you for too long. <laughs> That's what's great about it. Um, so in that small regard, even though it's a completely different um, idea, mm-hmm. I do agree with um, that old goat that you were talking to about like how stuff is a fad. Everything is a fad in a way. Right. It's, not th- it's not that like the internet is going to go away and people are going to revert back to television. Everything is going to change again, but yeah. it's going to become more strange, more decentralized, because because the the actual faster. The, the internet itself is not like the medium really right it, we've had the different ways of receiving the internet from its conception to where like the earliest form on the computers in like the form of like BBS boards and like, ICQ is the first thing that I had I had. even b- before that before yeah. we all knew and before like kind of the web 1.0 was sort of invented right mm-hmm. where like there was an actual like proper interface it was just message boards geeky message boards in the late yeah, 80s and stuff like that JPEGs. Yeah, yeah just really really lo-fi stuff and so now really instead of it being like you know radio to television and television to the internet it's more like television to early computer to like web 2.0 to smart devices to mm-hmm. wearable devices to blah, blah 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 now it's not really like the internet is this new medium it's more the way in which we receive receive it that is the replacing fad right yeah. we're not going to go back to tv we're going to go ahead to google glass and then from there it's going to be fucking ocular implants or whatever crazy sci-fi thing you want to think up next you know that's that's where it's going i think we're we're going to get even away from our our smartphones and our tablets like mm. within the next 10 years mm-hmm. i don't know yeah it's 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 worth checking out um some of the, the sci-fi writer bruce sterling stuff he's, yeah he's got a lot of really cool futurist essays about um you just like internet of things and the idea that like you know kind of what you're talking about like ubiquitous internet where there's data flying from like every device and and being used to make your decisions and your yeah content and as as uh you know the ideas of like smart homes and like smart appliances it's here it's not widespread not everybody has a central control system for uh their home but obviously that idea is going to get more and more popular. Computers are going to get cheaper and more integratable into your furniture. And, and, you know, as they come up with flexible computers and like smaller and smaller, smaller hard drives and stuff like that, your whole house, your whole life is going to be intrinsically connected by the internet in a way that's unavoidable and almost unconceivable to someone right now. As much as we are like, you know, indoctrinated into the internet and we, we use it so much, it's then a couple generations down the line are going to look at our interaction with it as primitive mm. and our usage of it as being, you know, like uh, we're under underutilizing it. Yeah. It's interesting to th- to see Facebook shift into kind of an old folks home. Like everybody's parents are joining up and yeah. the kids are kind of leaving because Facebook is the perfect baby's first internet. You know, if you give your mom a Facebook account, she connects to, to the, the relatives and stuff and you get an idea about how, status updates how posts work yeah how like you can type a sentence and 
put a picture from your phone on the thing or you can like screw it out. I wonder what Brendan's doing. Oh, there he is. Uh, he's got a picture of him with a drum kit. I'll comment on that. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, you know, you get used to like seeing video formats at a length that is internet acceptable, you know, like the 15 minute video. Clip. Oh yeah. It's everything. It's everything that's like safe and true about the internet. Everything that's little, like fun yeah. and, and easy to swallow in a very, very easy and intuitive. Interface. All in one place. Yeah. Because even, you know, I'm no fucking internet expert. Like the, um, I still need to, to talk to like younger people or like Ilya's is way crazier than I am about early adoption of websites and stuff like that. Yeah. So, you need to like touch base with those early adopters every so often to find out like what where the place is that lots of cool stuff is going on. Yeah, because um, that's the one thing about the internet that's hard to adapt to is that there's not really a guide. No, so you no. have to kind of like go out and make relationships and find people that will connect you to the cool stuff. There's a very in circle, mm -hmm. and by the time you naturally get to where that in-circle is it hanging shifts. out. Yeah. Uh, they're already on to something else. It's already mm -hmm. become just like a passe. Mm -hmm. you, know? um, you, you find that with the migration from MySpace to Facebook, even when MySpace was all just like 14 and 15-year-olds. Uh, there are no ads, really. Just really, really small ads, and it was all just like... I could change my background. Complete bullshit. Just like bullshitting all day. And then more and more, it was like crazy cool content and like AOL purchased my MySpace and like redesign after redesign after redesign and all your parents and blah, blah, blah can yeah. get on Well, it now. started for us when I was in college and it started spreading. It started for us because it was a dating platform. Yeah. Like you could basically troll the internet and find people to, to ask out. Yeah. And see pictures and stuff. And that was kind of the killer app that launched it. And then Facebook kind of went to the next level. Just because you remember that one little beat in the Facebook movie where it was like Zuckerberg f figures out the the um, status uh, relationship status uh, line. Yeah. And he's like, that's got to be in the thing when we launch it. And he adds it to it at the very last minute. That totally was the killer app that made Facebook kind of go viral is that you could see if somebody was single like very quickly right. going through the, the thing. Yeah, it is really um, like my MySpace was like the kind of... Uh, the casual online dating site 1.0 mm -hmm. where what it didn't brand itself as a dating site, but more often than not, it was used as such. Yeah. And with Facebook, it's, it's just like a profiling device, right? Like you can just eye somebody up and learn so much about them that you go armed to your first date with like a shitload of stuff to talk about mm -hmm. and already feeling like you kind of know that. And on the other side of it, you can know that you're not compatible with somebody pretty quickly. Really by just quickly. Scanning through their, their posts and stuff and yeah. go, Oh geez, kind of a weirdo. Yeah. And it, it just must be interesting for all the, all the, the kids and the, the younger generations who are like just hitting 14 and 15 now. And you know, I mean, even back when I was, uh, when I was in high school, it was like there's a problem with people sending naked pictures of themselves to one another, mm -hmm. right? The internet makes it so easy, but it's just getting easier and easier. Like every single phone has a camera in it now. Every single one. That wasn't like that when I was 14. Like yeah. the occasional phone had a camera in it and you couldn't upload it really fast and there was no Facebook on your phone. Yeah. But now it's just like Snapchat, fucking here's my dick, pow-pow, <laughs> in like three seconds. And just like the dating scene and the way that like sexuality must be approached for 
14, 15, 16-year-olds when they're going through that awkward phase of, like, what am I about and, like, how do I, like, connect to other people? The internet's going to fuck them up. I, I don't like, know, man. I think that you you get way more psychological problems by repressing that shit. Yeah. You end up, all the creepy people are the ones that had the strict parents and the the total uh, prohibition of like sexual ideas yeah, they were and never desensitized i think that a lot of these kids like everybody's worried about them that they're going to have these embarrassing photos i think that they're going to be healthier for it they're not yeah. going to have hang-ups about about their bodies and things i don't think one really interesting uh, example of that that i saw recently maybe you maybe you caught wind of it there was a a, a porn star who goes to like a school and and they were trying to shame her for it She's on the view? Like, Fuck, who it, cares? It, yeah, it was clearly it was all these other women at the table were probably women who were brought up, um, taught that like masturbating was wrong or or not just wrong, but that they just didn't they never talked about it. Mm. You know, may, might have had pretty sheltered upbringings, and they're all sitting around trying to pass judgment on this girl that was yeah. clearly brought up. In an, in a world where like her parents didn't shame her and she right. like started watching porn at thirteen and the one girl in the view was like, I it just breaks my heart that mm. you, like someone could just like, you know it sounds like you're reading from a script yeah. that you're reading from like and watching porn at thirteen like oh my god I feel so bad for you it's like don't fucking feel bad for her she's more liberated and comfortable with her body and she doesn't like. It's not some horrible problem that she started watching porn. Every male guy fucking start seeking porn out at like 12 13 11 11 12 yeah, 13 you start beating off around 11 and like, i think there's such a warped uh, memory wipe that happens whenever anybody becomes an adult and they're like they completely forget that kids have a sexual identity yeah and then it's just such a uh you know just a weird stigma that like uh got it's okay for like young boys to like seek out porn and masturbate but there's there's some you know, girls shouldn't be doing that, that that's yeah. like not proper or something like that. Mm-hmm. But if, if they, if they didn't have that like stigma about it, if there was never any of that, like air of, Oh, you're not supposed to be doing this. It's like a boy thing. It's like gross or dirty or whatever. Yeah. A, a lot more girls start watching porn at 13 and like kind of exploring themselves. Yeah. And well, you see, you see evidence that that's becoming the case. Like, um, I, I, you know, if I think of just my friends and the women I've dated and the people I know, um, anecdotally, I don't see as much of that conservatism anymore. Right. Like, it's very common for couples to watch porn now. Right. If uh, you're younger. Um, And that that idea of, like, um, of the girl being upset that her boyfriend is watching porn, that's, like, thankfully dying, too, because, like, why would you be... And that only existed because it was like a, it was a thing. People made it into a thing, right? All these like conservative people were just like, "Oh, once you're dating someone, why should you need to watch porn?" It's because like some mm. people are super sexual people. I, I would expand it into a, a much. I had I had a thought one time, um, very broadly about something like prostitution, right? right. Or um, what was it? Maybe heroin. You know, anything that you can think of a boundary that you have in your own personal judgment or your own personal tastes right. where you're like that that's that's the dark side i would never go that far you really have fallen if if you if you're getting into that side of life right and then you think of how there's people out there that think that about marijuana there's people that think of that way about um being uh having more than one sexual partner in your life there's people that think of that way about being a musician instead of a banker or a yeah. doctor or whatever there's everybody has a prejudice for aspects of life that they know nothing about yep. and 
they they consider it um um counterculture or they consider it like scary or uh, nefarious because they don't know anything about it right as soon as you become involved in a culture as soon as like you know you try smoking a joint as soon as you try different stuff you realize that like there's a more nuance in everything in right. the world <clears throat> yes there are happy hookers out there that um you know didn't arrive in the business because they were molested and you know are having you know, a good time, you know, there are people who are high functioning heroin addicts like, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman or whatever. Like well, nothing is, is, um, nothing is as it, it's, it's hard to understand something that you don't know anything about. Yeah. It's, it's like an obvious rule, but we forget it all the time. And I, I think that I feel like that's probably one of the worst, uh, worst problems with like North American mentality mm-hmm. is that we're just so terrified of things that we don't understand that we're not willing to try and understand them. Mm-hmm. Like, and that I feel like that's like the, the like prejudice against homosexuality in America in a nutshell is yeah. a bunch of people who, who don't know what it is and don't want to know what it is. And in those, those and two scared statements, that they'll have to change if they figure out what it is. Yeah. And I feel maybe some of them are afraid that like, you know, Especially religious people that once they like explore it and or look at it from like a non-objective standpoint, like they'll they'll realize that it's not so bad and it will devalue their religion. Yeah, it'll make their religion seem less correct. Yeah, and so now you just got like uh, rabid prejudice against homosexuals in certain states where people just are never going to change their mind because they're never going to stop and look at it from uh, anything but their own confirmation bias. Right, mm-hmm. they're never just going to think like, well, what's so bad about being gay? What's so bad about two men sleeping with each other? Like, nothing. There's nothing wrong with that. And what if you... It's a relatively recent prejudice, too. Yeah. Because, yeah... Back in Roman times, it was not a big deal. Nope. Nobody cared. Everyone was fucking everybody, including kids. And, like, that's not... I mean... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, don't fuck children. No, don't do that. It's the law. But I'm sure... I mean, I don't know... Hard to put yourself in that mindset. Well, that's that comes back. You know, there's there's a lot of modern conversations going on about consent, and that's that's really where the consent line draws, right? It's not moral to have sex with children or a lot of things because you can't guarantee consent. Like oh, somebody's not yeah. old enough to be able to make decisions. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and uh, so. I definitely think that about like super young kids, but I do think like once you get into the teen years, for like some of those kids. Especially only kids who ma- who mature a lot faster than kids with siblings, yeah, and stuff like that. It, it, you know, Dave Chappelle had that uh, that whole bit on like you know how old really is fourteen? He's talking yeah, about yeah, R. Kelly. Yeah. You can on put the a girl. kid in in jail for murder for accidentally breaking somebody's neck when they're doing a wrestling a wrestling move, move but but this fourteen year old <clears throat> girl couldn't make the decision whether or not she wanted to get out of way of R. Kelly's piss stream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. clearly, it was sort of like when you really think about it, fourteen-year-old girl in that sense has pretty much decided that she wants to get peed on by yeah, yeah, R. Yeah, Kelly, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. it's not like she had been really tricked. She's old enough, especially by like other standards. Yeah, yeah. To she make knew what she was doing, but that's not the point of view of the law. Like she wouldn't be punished because right. she know she knows what she's doing. It's the point of view of the law is that that person's not. Uh, mature enough to be making a responsible decision. Yeah, and as an adult and a multimillionaire, R. Kelly should have been more fucking careful. 
yeah, he should be able to make a more responsible decision than than hanging out with fourteen year olds. But I mean, to be fair, yeah. he's a dirty fucking man, and he he used to sing all the time back <laughs> in those days. But like, he had lines in the song like, "Show me, show me your ID before I get too deep." Just like before he gets too yeah, deep. like show me your ID because I'm not sure whether or not you're legal. He's yeah. kind of openly admitting that in his song, right? And what's hilarious is have you hang have you hung out with a fourteen year old lately? Uh, no, I it is so obvious when someone is under eighteen. Oh, it's yeah. obvious when somebody is under twenty-five. Yeah, they have a kind of way of holding their body and a way they look <laughs> that uh, it's it's hard to mistake. So you you can you can pretty confidently call bullshit on dudes that get caught. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know. I didn't. You know, I look twenty-five after. That show, How to Catch a Predator, just never gets old. I haven't seen it. Oh, if you if you want to get into one of the best YouTube holes that you've ever gotten in your whole life, it sounds creepy. Go watch because it's it's definitely creepy, and you're seeing all these like horrible, horrible fucking human beings who have like calculated to try and sleep with a 14 year old. But the best is trying to see them rationalize and talk their way out of it yeah. when they have like chat records right in front of them they're mm-hmm. like oh we have you on record he's like oh I, th- I thought she was 22 and like there's right. these chat records were like how old are you 14 is that okay fuck yeah baby I love 14 year olds he's like Whoa. no no she was 22 she was 22 I swore that's what she said dude mm-hmm. yeah. yeah give up the fucking lie buddy yeah. you're caught you're a fucking dirty man and like yeah if you don't think there, there's a swarm of cops waiting outside that door for you you're fucking dreaming yeah. and the tough thing the tough thing about it is um it's not uh it's not you're not dealing with like uh, an aberration like pedophiles and pederasts are an, an aberration right like being sexually attracted to children prepubescent children yeah that's is a rare disgusting. kind of thing and is it's it's kind of like a monstrosity that happens very very rarely but you know uh, up until 2000 years ago up until five, 3 or 400 years ago it was common for people to have wives that you know 13 year old brides yeah pubescent you know, pubescent pubescent <clears throat> women are are um biologically they're fair game for a lot of a lot of um people but it's uh it's the the weird thing about it um in my eyes is that people it's comes back to that consent issue is that you have to respect that people their brains are still developing until they're 18 years old and you shouldn't be um you know exploiting somebody even like in businesses and stuff even if it comes to like something as cut and dry as like having an employee that's under 18 you have to recognize that you're dealing with a person that's like not as psychologically mature and you have to so which which raises the question um is anything involving like Disney radio and the and the kids who have been exploited like Justin Bieber and stuff like that is that like completely unethical because I, I I've honestly always thought so because those kids are being brought along this path where it's been predetermined for them it's been predetermined that they're going to be like good kid like super pretty superstars mm. from age 13 
to like 16 and then at 17 there's going to be a bit of like rebellious flair and like you know they're going to start uh, dressing yeah, a bit but dressing a bit provocatively and then by 20 they're fucking banging everybody around them and like yeah. getting caught at parties and you get like the weed. completely contrived ideas like Bieber gets arrested for the first time yeah. driving too fast in his new car yeah it's like oh Bieber bad boy Bieber ba- like bad boy Bieber Bieber caught at a strip Bieber, club Bieber. giving strippers money it's like yeah, what is he, like 21 or something like that? 21, 25. Sounds about right. Sounds like what he should be doing. Right? He's got tons of money and he's in uh, like indoctrinated into this bro culture. So yeah. it feels like if you've said... It might be completely manufactured like your Mountain Dew um, uh, right. anecdote. How much of, how much of that you know, is he You might have a manager on? that's just like, okay, um, you need to get into more antics, Justin. Because you think about his background, right? Like he's a... He's a suburban kid from um, Stratford, Ontario, right, right? Right. So part of what's going on now might be completely manufactured where they're like, you know, we've got the cops on the payroll. You're going to drive your car around, getting a little scamp. They're going to smell some marijuana on you. We're going to, it'll make a great blog post. Yeah, I, I don't. They're trying, to, they're trying to, they're doing their best to get rid of the old image, right? Yeah. You can't have him being baby Baby yeah, it's anymore. super cute. He's gonna have to be like sex idol, and they did it. They've done it to practically every like child yeah. singer. Usher kind of took him under his wing. Like I think Usher had a similar story or whatever. Like he, and and he also I think he did something with Usher or something like that. Transition. Yeah, and uh, that it makes perfect sense because then you, like you pair him up with this dude who is a mid to late twenties or maybe even, I don't know whether or not Usher's in into his thirties yet. But I mean, back in the ah. I don't know how old he is. He might be. He might be old. I, no, no, because back when he started, he he was like seventeen or eighteen or something like that. I so, wanna make love at the club. Yeah. <laughs> so hey. he, he put Justin Bieber, this like fledgling, under the wing of this like mid to, to late twenties sex icon, mm-hmm. and let him pick up all of his his swag, and then he'll be like a late life lady killer. So like all yeah. all the girls that like loved his music when they were sixteen are gonna fucking go to clubs and grind to his new music when they're 26. It's a really right? interesting business, right? Because they're uh, they're laying the ground for the next generation of money-making personality, right? Like, Usher takes this kid under the wing, and, you know, all the pop stars, they know they only have a, a certain shelf life. Mm-hmm. So if they want to recycle the arc, the character arc that they did before, they need a new fresh face. They've got the same songwriters on staff that are just going to come up with the new teeny bop hit. Yeah. And then they start the whole cycle over again. It's amazing. Yeah. Pop music is just so weird. It's such a weird world. And like uh, trying to make a music music appeal to kids to like 14 to 18 year olds and targeting that group where it's like all their parents money. Mm. Such a huge market. Yeah. For so long now, even just boy bands when I was a kid, like the idea of Backstreet Boys drove me insane. Just you like, like boys to men, though. I, well, I I like boys <laughs> to men now. I like boys <laughs> to men in like in retrospect. I don't think I listened to boys to men when I was a kid, um, or like I'm I probably I I watched enough much music that I'm sure I heard some boys to men back then. Yeah, but uh, it was more segregated back in the day. Much much music. It had clear programming blocks. Well, yeah, Rap City yeah. and uh, Going Coastal mm-hmm. and like whatever, The Wedge, which was my jam. I was just watching The Wedge really Fucking late at Wedge night. Wedge is still the best thing that they have. I, yeah, I'm so happy that TV they brought anymore. that back. Yeah, because it used to be like I found much music 
And actually, a lot of the Toronto stations centered around that company. Mm-hmm. It's like City TV and Much Music and stuff like that. Uh, I just found them back in the 90s to just be of this very strange, high quality. Yeah. Something about the tone and the pacing of even the advertisements and the announcers and the mm-hmm. way they set up blocks and were kind of free about late night stuff yeah. just made the watching experience very enjoyable. And they Yeah, it's it's almost a Snymer, man. That guy completely changed Canadian television. Yeah. And they need to bring yeah. back Speaker's Corner. They need mm. to bring back like it's different it's different era. We got YouTube now, right? Yeah. Yeah, there's I guess it was it really fell off. But that guy's a fucking visionary. I, I wish I could meet uh, Moses Snymer. He seems like I don't know if we would get along or whatever, but I respect that guy so much for his track record. Yeah. Um founding uh chum city tv um doing much music contributing so much to giving a focal point to the canadian music scene yeah things like video fact video fact has given millions and millions of dollars in financing and yeah. promotion money factor is a is a extension of it yeah um speaker's corner like you said speaker's corner Launched launched some music careers, launched some comedians' careers, mm-hmm. and just in general, like created pieces of like Toronto folklore that, you know, people from that era will never forget. Yeah. And there's even things like you know, I just remember I don't remember what it was called. I'm sure it had a name, but there's something on City TV late at night where it was just they'd put a camera on the dashboard of a cab. That was so trippy. And it just drove around to classical and like jazz music all night. That was their equivalent to like station identification where the other networks would just play a piercing tone and have a generic faded picture of like the Toronto skyline. Yeah. Meanwhile, City TV would play blue movies, softcore porn. And after that was done, they would do a cab mounted camera. Just driving around with jazz hours for hours. And it was so pacifying and great Mm -hmm. to watch, especially for that time of night. Right. Yeah. Because it would be at the end of the programming day. So sometime between like two and five in the morning. uh, And, you know, you're a kid staying up really late at night and you just kind of drift off to this beautiful peaceful driving around downtown Toronto at night. Fucking awesome. There's, there was several times, um, I had my dad when I was growing up, uh, he would work uh, super late. Right. So he'd miss dinner and we'd all go to bed by the time he got home. And, um, it became kind of a a ritual where I would instinctively kind of wake up around like one 30 in the morning because I knew my dad would be coming home and he'd probably have pizza. Oh, so I'd like join him down in the basement and, you know, I'd have a piece, he'd give me a piece of pizza and we'd like watch whatever's on. And, um, yeah, I got into the habit of, of waking up in the middle of the night. And at some point, um, I started, I got a little tiny black and white television. Yeah. That was like the first TV that I got in my room yeah. and it just had rabbit ears. And the only stations that I could pick up was Fox 29 from Buffalo yep. and, and, um, Global, Global, and uh, City TV. Yeah. The three and, best, the only three you need at that time. Oh, fucking crazy. And, you would find such strange things on city TV in the middle of the night. I remember I woke up one night and the Rocky horror picture show was on Oh yeah, and seeing the fucking Rocky horror picture show when you're 10, 11 years old, it's like a portals opening up from another dimension, right? Like you've got all these people in drag and there's rockabilly music and fucking naked Susan Sarandon. Yeah. Just like a, a strange sci-fi, um, slightly gay, slightly um, 
I don't know, like this weird combination of things. Yeah, and for a ten year old, that's yeah, mind blowing. Yeah, from the suburbs, and yeah. then you'd go to school the next day and go like, "Has anybody seen that movie with the fucking <laughs> giant singing lips at the beginning of it, and like <laughs> the people in cross dressing, and that guy from Stephen King's It is this drag queen yeah. in it? Oh, so weird." Hit the clown. There was this. There was this other movie called Dolls. Have you ever seen Dolls? Yeah, yeah. That Long would be on ago. city TV in the middle of the night. That's These so weird. Creepy fucking dolls. I just uh, there's actually been you know like Canadian television compared to like American streams that I've seen, just more enjoyable and like those late night sh- those late night programming blocks and Canadian television because it's like they can pretty much do whatever they want after a certain mm-hmm. time. Just fucking awesome. I, I uh, during fucking high school I yeah. I made it a point to wake up early every day because I knew uh, space. Space mm. TV would be showing uh, back-to-back episodes of Hilarious House of Frightenstein at like oh Jesus at like four in the morning weirdest kids show ever. So I'd go to bed early. I'd pass out at like nine ten, and I'd wake up at four in the morning and pour myself a giant bowl of cereal and watch Billy Van and Vincent Price just like trip their way through this fucking children's program. And then right after, and it that, had that same vibe that I'm trying to describe for Rocky Horror Picture Show, where like you're not quite laughing. Yeah. You're not quite... You're just kind of bewildered. Yeah. What, what am I watching right now? And in, in my, you know, my later years, I fucking love Hilarious at Frightenstein. It's classic. But back then, I was so fascinated by it just because I was trying to understand what it was. I had mm. no context of like where the show came from or why it existed or whether or not it was geared at children, really. And why the one guy was playing every character on the show. Yeah, and why is Vincent Price here? (laughs) Why, like, this weird show out of Hamilton, like, why is Vincent Price in every single episode? Holy shit. And then it turns out there's like a hundred and some odd episodes, like a hundred episodes. I I really liked hearing the background of of that. Um, You told me a couple years ago. You should uh, share some of that if people don't know the story. Yeah, just uh, Hilarious S. Frightenstein, if anyone who hasn't seen it, amazing uh, sort of spoof variety hour show shot in Hamilton um, back in the I guess it would be the 70s and it has Vincent Price in it and this Canadian comedian named Billy Van who used to be on the Sonny and Cher show and all these mm-hmm. other weird variety shows back in the 1670s and uh, it's just a, the strangest mix of humor that c- couldn't possibly be geared at a, at a kid. Just it all takes place in a Dracula castle. Yeah, a Dracula castle. Thing. And where he plays every villain, and there's just kind of recurring characters where there's like a Dracula and his Igor, and then there's a, like a Wolfman Jack character, and there's a Vincent Price basically just tells like limericks, like yeah. half scary. It's a variety limericks. show kind of format. They just completely just recurring over and over and over and over. Characters. And it had the unique uh, the unique added element at the end of every episode. Um, they would have a sequence where the Wolfman would play a hit song from the time because back then there's no such thing as fucking licensing or mm-hmm. copyright. It's, yeah. it's, uh, it would seem. He's anyways. in Hamilton, Canada in the, the 70s. Right. He's policing this. No one cares. <laughs> so Cable he's, access. He's putting Rolling Stones and the Beatles and, you know, all these different high-priced licensed songs. And it would go completely psychedelic. It would just be colors and then the silhouette yeah. of Igor chroma and the Wolfman dancing in chroma key. Yeah, just in chroma key. <laughs> just beautiful chroma key effects with a big fat guy dancing in front of a, a chroma key screen. Um, yeah, just this weird pacing. Everything about it, very, very strange. And apparently Vincent Price really loved to get drunk. He used to buy like, beer for the cast all the time and they mm. just had like a blast. And didn't you, didn't you tell me that the way they set it up um, Vincent Price only needed to come for like two days or whatever. They yeah. shot like all of the sequences for 
for the one the thing. Dracula for the so like for 150 episodes or 140 some odd episodes they shot every single librarian skit in one day yeah. and then every single Vincent Price limerick in one day or a couple days you know mm. they blocked them off that way so that it, they just put them all together they later didn't have to do the makeup twice <laughs> yeah and they could sort of assemble them all later based on theme Mm-hmm. Right, they, if they had like a limerick that might kind of coincide with one of the Dracula skits, they'll just put that together later and post, mm-hmm. and that'll be it. They'll, the episodes will reveal themselves from that. Mm-hmm. A very interesting way of filming a variety show, because um, you know they they sort of uh, they just expected it to to work, right? They expected yeah. it to to go that long. It could have just easily they filmed all that, and the first episode was horribly. Received and they just pulled it off the network, yeah. and that's it. They shot all those hours of programming for nothing. But what was the what was the main guy's name? Billy Billy Van Billy Van. It seemed like that guy was such a crazy ad libber, though, that you could just let the tape run and he'd fill up two hours of just ad libbing yeah. librarian jokes or ad libbing. Yeah, he sort of reminds me. Jokes. He's got he's that era of comedian that like Wayne and Schuster right. and like bizarre, but yeah, bizarre like the early um the early Super Dave Osborne stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. that was sort of his his yeah. game, and he was really really good at it. <laughs> Super Dave, I fuck, I've seen every Super Dave episode. Oh, I, I completely forgot about Super Dave until you. <laughs> yeah, they, if like if you want to fucking trip. Go revisit Bizarre, the first place where he shows up as Super Dave Osborne before his <laughs> before his own show where he was doing those stunts. He, they just had a skit on Bizarre where he'd show up, and it is so strange. And yeah. like, I didn't even know it was a comedy when I was a kid. I thought he was a stunt man <laughs> that just had a variety show. But at the end of every episode, he gets crushed into like a into helmet, sneakers. a helmet, a helmet, and two sneakers that yeah. walks off screen. Or yeah, but when you're a kid, you're watching, you know, Warner Brothers cartoons and stuff and crazy shit. Oh, I like guess that it, I guess real life does work like that. <laughs> you know, it's exaggerated or something. But you're like, maybe all stuntmen are are faking it. I don't know. Yeah, I I think I was surprised to see him on Curb Your Enthusiasm. Put it that way, I didn't think that he. I thought he was a stuntman first <laughs> and a comedian second, not the other way around. Because he wasn't funny on the Super Dave show. I believe his name is Bob Einstein. <laughs> yeah, his last name is it's Einstein. Not even Dave for sure. Yeah, Bob Einstein. I'm pretty sure is his name. Mm. Um, yeah, what a funny, what a funny guy. Was that Canadian too? That, that had the same vibe as uh, as. Um, Hilarious House of Frank Frankenstein. It, I think or SCTV, that kind of like Canadian. Yeah. I think I'm pretty TV sure vibe. Wayne and Schuster was Canadian. I'm not sure about Bizarre, but you might be right. You remember the show Soap? That's another one, the old soap opera parody. I have seen the opening of Soap many times just before clicking it on YTV <laughs> at like fucking midnight. Yeah, just, oh, absolutely fabulous used to come on. I think yeah, either before fab. or after it. Abfab came a, on. That was a better and, show. And uh, are you being served? I haven't uh, seen that's that one. Uh, they used to play. That was weird. YTV would play all the the weird adult uh, British comedy comedy dramas <laughs> yeah. at like two in the morning. Yeah. For some reason, it's like all oh, the kids are in bed, so we'll just play fucking "Are You Being Served" and like Abfab <laughs> for uh, like any kid that might still be awake and wants to just like peer into the world of British comedy. Yeah, there you go. And it's a weird line to draw for censorship, as if children can't observe alcoholism in real life. <laughs> <laughs> I knew about alcoholism long before I ever saw yeah, any TV shows too. about it. You know, you got relatives, don't you? They, were, uh, they had a pretty good disposition. They're having a pretty good time on that show. Yeah. Yeah, it seems that. Hip old ladies. Mm-hmm. We'll take a quick break. A little yeah. breaker. Pee break. Pee break. All right. Honk, honk. <laughs> 
right now. <clears throat> Remember when you were a teenager and music sounded like this for a while? Yeah, that kind of corn thing, that kind of oh. scat metal. Oh, we, yeah, we, <laughs> Andrew and I. We're constantly for years making fun of that. Man, what a fucking bad time for music. Come on. The the uh well, what's the Family Values tour? Just Limp Biscuit and Corn on tour. Bring some stuff tonight. Rage Against the Machine and Corn and Ball all what was those Rage bands. Against, I Rage, Rage Against the Machine had more street cred than those oh, bands. Oh, for sure, I think. I did it all for the Nookie. Yeah! The Nookie. The Nookie was the song that burst the bubble for me. Not, I wasn't a fan of Limp Bizkit, but I was kind of at that age where, like, <clears throat> I didn't really listen to a lot of music when I was a, a young kid, right? And um, around uh, high school, mid-high school, I started to get into Psychedelic Sunday and stuff on Q107, and start to become a fan of bands yeah. like after a, a whole childhood of just watching TV and, and re reading books and stuff. And, uh, I got, I started to get into like top 100, top 10 playlist kind of th Tarzan Dan on <laughs> YTV or whatever. Countdown, yeah. countdown on the radio. Cause that's where you, you got to start somewhere. So that's where I started. And right. so I got, uh, I was following like whatever the top 40 bullshit was, uh, for months and months. And uh, at the tail end of the 90s, you had l the bands that were legit, like Bjork and um, fucking, uh, you know, Kurt Cobain, Nirvana kind of stuff being like the chart topper, but also artistically some of the, the best stuff that was going on. Yeah, back and then stuff like that. There was a, a very smooth, flawless transition where um, you started to see bands that you didn't understand take over those top spots on the countdowns yeah and i remember very clearly i was watching the much music countdown and limp biscuit hit number one limp biscuit nookie and it's i was number one song i was staring at the tv and trying to get into the song you know like trying to you know like you have to get there's there's instances where you hear a new song and at first you don't like it and you think oh maybe i just need to give it a chance obviously if this is the number one song in the nation there must be something to it right Right. Um, you know, I got I was able to understand Whitney Houston's I Will Always Love You eventually after I heard it 60,000 times. This was number one for goddamn months. Anyways, um, so I was watching that Nookie video and just feeling like completely detached from popular culture. Like I couldn't understand the type of person that would be a fan of it. I didn't understand the hook of the song. I thought it was obnoxious. I thought it was boring. I thought it was everything. Yeah. Distasteful. Oh. And... It was a mis and like a connection like happened in my brain where I was like, maybe much music is lying to me, right? I started to become suspicious, yeah. Right, and it wasn't until in um you know just recently a couple of years ago I was reading about the history of Clear Channel on like Wikipedia or something, yeah. And um, for those of you that don't know um, how it broke down, um, this large corporation in the United States um, went on a buying frenzy and basically bought. Um, terrestrial radio like the majority of terrestrial radio stations and they increased efficiency by coming up with generic playlists for different regions that were like focused on you know this is the new music station this is the r&b hip-hop station this is the blank 
and um, they would um, design the stations centrally at their company headquarters, and then they would beam out the signal, and every station in the world would play the same bullshit. Um, around the same time, um, there had been enough media consolidation in the music business that um, a corporation with long enough tentacles would own the recording stations, would own the music labels that were out scouting for the people who were going to be the new pop stars. They would be paying the, um, the composers to write the new pop songs. They would own the station through subsidiaries so that they could um, take those new tracks and push them at a high rotation yeah. on, the, on the radio stations. And then they would use the sound scan evidence that was coming from um, scanning people's cars that was playing their generic stations as evidence that that was the number one song. Right. So, like, they had mastered, they had completely bought the entire pipeline of music. And the idea was, if we own the stations that everybody's listening to, and we own the stores, and we own Billboard by being able to buy hundreds of thousands of copies of our own record on day one and pushing up to number one, Yeah. and we um, own television stations that do arbitrary countdowns that make it seem as though... Um, a song is rising week after week and finally becomes number one. Eventually, after all of that investment, the kids at home will see that this is the number one song and they'll hopefully go and buy the record for real. Yeah. And the real the the fake story will become reality. And it was fact, something yeah. like 1999, 1998 that they had completely mastered that. They took, I think it was uh, Backstreet Boys, where it was the example that they were giving in the article that I was reading. Yeah. That was uh, a completely manufactured band that was done by scouting and grooming and uh, ghost massive ghost written and then uh, pushed heavily on stations owned by the company and then uh, pushed up to the the top of the charts to the point where people actually bought the record. Yeah, elevated them worked, to celebrity status, right? manufacturing those like number one and hits. As soon as they mastered it, as soon as they cracked the code for for printing money in the music business. Napster comes along and pulls the rug out from underneath it. Oh, yeah. And then suddenly the internet, and then suddenly all the terrestrial radio stations that they bought are generic and boring, and people are exodus to uh, online uh, choices. Yeah, and now it's gotten to the point where, you know, radio is basically still the only two places that I can ever think that people listen to radio yeah. is, like, in their cars or at work. Right. They're forced to listen to it in a kitchen or they're listening to it because it's the only thing they have in their car on the way home. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, with everything else that's available, why would you ever turn a radio on? There's something neat about um, morning shows I like. I don't mind listening to um, the CBC morning show, Matt Galloway's thing, because you kind of get brief sound bites that give you an idea of what's going on in the city what average people are thinking about, whether yeah. it's going to be a snowstorm. I don't mind talk radio yeah. uh, so much. Like, it's still, like, I feel like talk radio was not affected by that whole, yeah. like, rise and fall of manufactured number ones. Because mm -hmm. talk radio has always just been a, a very niche yeah. thing to begin with. It's like, not everybody likes to sit and listen to somebody talk. Yeah. <laughs> On the other hand, um, uh, the most concentrated version of what I'm talking about is like, have you ever listened to Sirius Satellite Radio? That yeah, thing's a fucking yeah. nightmare. Yeah. Oh my God. I had to listen to three hours of Sirius Satellite Radio when we were driving up to Mont Tremblant like in the, the wintertime. Right. And it's like, somebody wanted to put on the alternative station. All right. We all remember the 90s, right? It's the same 
like 25 songs that you associate with the 90s. That's it. Fucking Pearl Jam Jeremy. Fucking uh, Soundgarden, Spoonman. You know, these bands have other songs, right? Like you can put on side two of uh, In Utero or whatever. Which which is why I always like back when Winamp, Winamp was the first time that I think I was introduced to to completely like kind of pirate internet radio stations Mm -hmm. where someone I knew was running one, uh, I forget, I think it's called Wincast or Cast something, but Winamp provided a way for you to broadcast anything that was on your playlist with like you talking over it, like with Mm -hmm. mic support, and it would just show up on a big list of radio stations, of internet radio stations that you could just choose from and jump into on your Winamp client. And so it was like the only place back then, maybe like in t- 2000, in and around that time, where I could just go and really just learn about music I'd never hear otherwise. I could click mm-hmm. on, you know, someone out of San Francisco and just listen to blah, 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 just rap out of San Francisco, whatever they were playing. And that was like, I would know I would he- not hear anything I knew. Yeah. And I would keep hearing something different. There were no restrictions, play whatever they want. No censorship, no anything, and it was mm. uh, such a beautiful idea. Yeah. Just free fucking radio, completely uncensored, uninhibited. Just play whatever you want, play what you think is good, say what you want, and people will fucking listen. Yeah, and radio is completely not that way anymore. They even like new radio stations, uh, as much good as they try and do, they still inevitably have to bow to their corporate masters. They still inevitably have to bend to this structure of radio that is basically the accepted format in which you're supposed to receive your FM. Yeah. Just very annoying hosts and really obnoxious commercials, like purposefully made to be obnoxious so that they stick in your head, right? And so you can't avoid listening to the radio without hearing something that has been designed to piss you off. Mm Mm-hmm. That is a flaw in a media system. If, like, you can't avoid something that, like, triggers a pet peeve in mm. an entire medium, something's wrong with it. Yeah. You need more variety. You need to break KFAB and try new things with radio and not be afraid of, like, losing your corporate sponsors. Yeah. I don't know what's going to happen think that radio. I think that the, the broadcasters on podcasts, they have to be really careful about this current wave of fucking stamps.com and audible and all these, this, this handful of state of companies that are um, sponsoring every single podcast because it's obnoxious to us fans that everything we turn on, there's different, you know, I'd like to share a personal anecdote about stamps.com, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And it goes on and on and on. You're like, fuck, yes, we're aware that you can mail without stamps on stamps.com. Thank you very much. If I ever need to do terrestrial mail again, I'm glad. I'll, I'll use stamps.com. Thanks a lot. Go away now. Yeah, and it's always great as a Canadian viewer to listen to every podcast and have there be nothing that actually translates into the Canadian market. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Constantly and imagine if you were in South Africa or something or someplace even further away. Yeah, just yeah. constantly hearing ads for like Hulu, like the newest stuff on Hulu. It's just like fuck, I can't fucking get Hulu. I don't care. Yeah, like you got to figure, you got to think of broader things, especially if you're looking to target the entire North American market and not mm-hmm. corner yourself. Yeah. to a certain part of the world. If you, if you listen to Joe Rogan's show, the most effective advertisements are when he's talking about his own shit, like the Onnit yeah. stuff. Um, because he's dealing with something that has a brand story that's actually interesting to the people that are tuning in. Mm-hmm. So, like, for instance, having a, a Joe Rogan um, 
podcast a segment where you interview somebody from the UFC. That's the perfect advertisement for the UFC. Oh yeah, because it makes fan. You become a fan by listening to it. Yeah, and it's organic. That's going back to exactly what I was saying about the Seth Godin stuff about the product is the marketing. Yeah. If you're if you want to be a, a savvy podcaster, I think that you should only take on sponsors that have an interesting enough product that you can weave it into your show naturally. It's not an advertisement if you're talking about the thing because you actually like it. Yeah, right. You know, like when we were mentioning Oculus Rift, right? Yeah. Uh, You know, they could get... It would be more effective if Oculus Rift was trying to do an advertising strategy where they did a scan of the internet through bots or whatever, Mm -hmm. and they found that there was a group of podcasters that talk about their product all the time, and they flip the funnel. They say like, hey, we really appreciate all of the good vibes that you've been giving us here's three thousand dollars like keep keep your podcast keep going, going and you know? if you want to talk about oculus Rift some more go right ahead you yeah. know say some more nice things about our product mm-hmm. that's what ends up happening if if you become um a voice if it becomes obvious that like you're into a certain product they'll just start sending it to you for free yeah they want you to keep perfect, on using it perfect example of that on the uh the video podcast network um doug benson you know he does the getting doug with high Great show, show. Great show, and he, he he at the beginning, he didn't have any sponsors, and he was just doing stuff like, well, I brought my, my vaporizer from this company here today, mm-hmm. and I guess I'll just put it here on the table, and hey, if you, uh, you want to see us keep smoking it, why don't you send us a free one, or just, uh, this one's broken, and just, and then eventually, you know, f- four or five episodes in, suddenly sponsors started popping up, where it's like, oh, we're sponsored by this, like, e-cigarette company now, and yeah. everybody on the episode got to take one home. And, and it's, it's like, so crazy, because I'm sure that he had uh, people in his network, friends of his, that were like, you can't go on YouTube and just, like, smoke joints. It's like, who are you going to get to be your guest? No one wants to see be seen smoking illegal drugs on the internet and having that be associated with them. And he's just like, I'm going to do it anyway, right? Yeah. And it just so happens that he's positioned perfectly, like... He, He's going to be the guy if any of these medical marijuana places want to expand or, like, open up a proper brand or whatever. Yeah. It's a perfect spokesperson. He's already doing – he's the only person doing a show like that. Yeah. Get Well, I mean, like, you know, the the Kevin uh, Smith podcast, um, the Smodcast, like, they smoke a lot of weed on it. Mm. But they – it's just – you just hear them coughing and smoking weed. Yeah. Whereas Doug Benson has created an entire show about – how fun it is to sit down with your friends for an hour and get retardedly baked yeah. and talk about stuff. Mm-hmm. And hey, if you guys all want to watch it, go ahead. And yeah. people do. People don't even just watch it archived. They go and they watch it live and they smoke along with him. Mm-hmm. They log in. At That's four- funny. Does he ever take call- calls from people that are smoking no, along but with the show? He takes, that would be great. He takes Twitter questions. I really liked uh, the, the train wreck uh, call-in segments that Tom Green would do. Oh, <laughs> man. Those, that really... Uh, that really drove him crazy. He, he had a though. breakdown because of that. Basically, the internet Maybe. the internet launched uh, like a war on him when he was doing that Tom <laughs> Green live show. That it got to the point where he how you did know, that barrel roll stuff start? It's just a it's just an old internet meme, right? Like <laughs> do a barrel roll, and people were calling and trying to get him to say gentlemen, gentlemen, like just all these internet memes. And because it was this like internet broadcast call-in show he could not avoid a show where someone didn't call and just start he had no one screening calls yeah and there's not even a way to screen it properly so he just 
you know, he'd start the show and take his first call, and it would just be someone screaming racial profanities. <laughs> and he'd be like, well, I guess we're done with fucking taking calls tonight. And then it just got to the point where I watched one of the episodes, and it was just him in a horse mask with a fucking chainsaw <laughs> just screaming and going, ah! ah! And just he had fucking completely lost it because the intended format of his show just didn't work. Yeah. With the internet culture, that old idea of, like, people calling into a TV show and having There's their There's too say, many trolls. There's too many trolls. It's too open. You're the number's too easy to f- find, and there's like too wide a viewership mm. for you to really pull that off without it being complete chaos. Yeah, and he, especially since he's trying to do it with just a few people, right? Like a very skeleton crew mm-hmm. in his house. Yeah, in L.A., there's it, there was no way he could win. Yeah, it's a dumb. It, it, that's TV thinking again, right? Like he could have scanned the message boards and said, "Oh, I've got like these nine or ten really devoted fans that like have a lot of really interesting questions. Why don't we have them for a segment and it'll just be our panel or whatever. And we can do Skype connection between them and they can. And I think he, I think he sort of missed the boat, the Twitter boat by like a a Mm. dick hair, you know, like Mm -hmm. Twitter became something that was implemented for that very reason where it was a very immediate instantaneous way to ask and respond to a question yeah. and a TV show in the course of their break yeah. could search through Twitter and find the five best and put them on screen. Yeah. And, and there's a rad thing too that you can just block people. Yeah. Like they misbehave, you're blocked. Then you're blocked. And then like the community self edits and very uh, gradually over time you get a more and more. Yeah. And if he had implemented Twitter, civil. he would have never had to deal with this constant voice trolling and like racial obscenities and stuff like that. He would have had a, a pretty successful show because his guests were awesome. Mm-hmm. He would have he's like still doing it, isn't he? I think so. I think he's still he, doing it. It was it was funnily enough, like because comedy comedy network, the Canadian mm-hmm. comedy uh, channel pick the show up for a season it was on tv it was on comedy network late at night like 11 or 12 yeah. o'clock you could go on and watch tom green um and then you know it got too out of control yeah and they just had to censor too much of it so they pulled it i think it, it, i think him and uh, and uh, carolla are very similar stories but i think Anna, adam carolla what he did well is he was confident enough to say like i'm doing this internet thing and yeah. i don't care if it blows up or whatever. This is just my way of like organizing my fans. Yeah. It seemed like Tom Green is always tempted into flirting with like trying to become legitimate because, because he, he did a movie and because of this. Well, because he was he was very more. He was plucked out of obscurity, out of like Canadian television obscurity by MTV yeah. and made like the biggest thing in comedy for a few years, right? Mm-hmm. He went from just doing a cable access style show on Canadian television to having like a nationally broadcast MTV show and a movie deal and like just being increasingly the the risque like do anything for a laugh comedian. Yeah. And then it was it all as that sort of like jackass thing died off that era of mtv sort of died off and was replaced by like just more reality shows Mm -hmm. mtv stopped trying to create like that kind of comedy content where they could just put a reality show on and have it be everything all at once yeah uh now he's just struggling for his place in the world he's like back back in obscurity he's back where like only people who care about tom green care about tom green and people never hear about him anymore because mtv doesn't have their fucking production team on it and what i what i find sad about it like i don't know the man uh so i can't really tell i'm just seeing by like his body language and stuff like i saw him recently on norm mcdonald's uh, yeah i watched that one too yeah yeah he was smoking a lot of cigarettes he kind of looked 
didn't look healthy. I, I just, I, I think that he needs, uh, it's gotta be tough for somebody to have that kind of arc, but I feel like you, you're, you're going to be happier if you just focus on making the stuff you want to make and celebrating the people who show up. You can't like get into this habit where you're constantly fixated on like chasing fame and chasing like all of the all of the oh I, I have less of an audience than I did yesterday. Yeah. I'm a fucking failure and I'm washed up and I'm gonna have less of an audience tomorrow and eventually I'll be homeless and that'll be the enemy. Instead of thinking like that, celebrate the people who showed up, right? Keep There's those still, people around. Yeah. yeah. And May- have May Lee told me, or uh, she said something that really uh, resonated with me, and I've been thinking about a lot. That like, really, in the long run, uh, you just have to remember that nobody gives a fuck about anything you do. Mm-hmm. Like, as much as it may seem like they do, there's gonna come a day where they don't, and they're gonna care about something else. And the sooner that you realize that, the sooner that you stop taking what you're doing so like overwhelmingly seriously and being like, oh, I'm I'm shooting up in fame, and I'm just yeah. I need to grow, I need to go bigger, I need to step up, I need to step up. The sooner that you realize that, like, eventually it's not going to matter, the easier it's going to be for you. Yeah, and I mean, when you first start out, you have a posture of service. Yeah. Like, you're making something as a gift to people, right? Right. And there's this weird tipping point where you get popular enough and we start to feel like the world owes us now. Like, you're the god of media, and everybody should be so thankful that you showed up and made your show this week. When, and you can, it, like, the, the memory, you forget what it's like to be an amateur and doing something and trying to put a craft together for, uh, for its own sake. Yeah. Because you enjoy the process, and because I, the, the thing that made me want to make stuff when I was a kid is I would see things in movie theaters or in books and it was like a magic trick was being performed because you didn't know how like an artist was making those lines or how they came up with that story or how somebody talks for three hours and comes up with interesting things to say and and all of the the behind the scenes kind of stuff that eludes you or when you can't see the wires, when you can't see the behind the scenes. Right. Um, And... I always just thought it would be amazing to be able to give back and say, like, um, there's all sorts of people out there that are bored and or don't know certain things that you know. And it's really great when somebody shows up and shares something cool with you because um, it makes you smarter. It opens your life experience to new things you never thought about. Um, There's some that gift can be really powerful and you know in our limited capacity um i always thought it was like amazing to be able to contribute yeah know? rodney mullen actually in his ted talk rodney mullen you know for all that he is like just brilliant skateboarder mm. he's also got a a certain wisdom like sage like wisdom about him yeah and uh one of my favorite quotes of last year is uh there's an intrinsic value in creating something for the sake of creating it yeah. Right. Like he, he he wasn't coming up with those skateboarding tricks because he he was thinking about this this line of like, oh, I'll come up with this trick and this trick. And then people will notice that me doing this trick and I'll become a pro and I'll go on a tour and I'll make a bunch of money and then yeah. I'll retire from being a skateboarder. He was like, what can I do on a skateboard that looks great? How can I like reinvent this trick? How can I make this trick more complicated? Mm. He was just inventing for the sake of inventing and any fame or success that came about as a result of it was completely tertiary in his mind, right? Like just was not, 
not ever a part of his plan. And if it never happened, he wouldn't have been any um, less fulfilled in his life. He wouldn't have found himself to be any, uh, you know, less valuable or done anything less important. You know, he his creation to him is the most important thing. And I feel like a lot of people lose sight of that Mm -hmm. where we're creating turns into um, t- more just like a product manufacturing where like instead of coming up with new things, you find something that works. It happens a lot in music. People mm-hmm. find something that works and they make a lot of money and then their record label says, we want more of that. Yeah. And so rather than take any chances, they just do that. And that works sometimes. Like that's all well and good. But when every fucking band does that and every band finds their their sound and then never strays far from it, yeah. is always just making music like that. You put people to sleep yeah eventually you run out of steam and people just like stop caring you've stopped creating for the sake of creating and you you've you're only creating for the sake of like maintaining the status quo and keeping the paychecks coming in yeah for sure and um i don't it's it's totally art and commerce or is something that we all struggle with yeah i mean it's i can i completely empathize like i have I've gotten into the the same uh, spots where you find yourself chasing paper, yeah, and then uh, you realize that old adage: how uh, a lot of times when you only do something for the money, uh, it's not worth it, and a lot most of the time you don't even get the money. That's what like Neil Gaiman, the way Neil Gaiman put it, yeah, um, and that's totally happened to me. Where it, it was a miserable thing that you didn't want to get involved with, you didn't like the people, but you needed the cash, and it ends up being a disaster because like a lot of times people who are involved in creative industries who you don't like their character and you don't like their taste, they make a lot of shitty business decisions to go along with that, that bad judgment. They end up being sharks in other ways. They end up being people who are indecisive and people who don't have good taste. So they'll make you make work that's beneath your, your taste level. Right. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a really tricky thing to navigate. Um, I also think that you really have to be honest with yourself about where you're at in the creative process, right? Because so much of making like a a a, a really um, a really grand artistic statement, there's a lot of hard work involved in that, right? Like the fun part is always the starting. Right. Like starting a podcast or starting a band or starting a a blank. Right. When you're first learning things, when you're first experimenting, that's when all of the fun is going on and you're just goofing around and you're having um, you having a lot of brain sparks just on the new information that's coming. Yeah. And you have nothing but open possibilities, too, which I think is also starting from the bottom. So it's just up from there. Right. Like it can't get worse yeah. from there and then you go through this middle period where um through all that experimentation you might mine something completely unexpected and you go like you know what this is really good right and you pass it around to some people and they're like yeah i really like this blah 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 and that leads to a record deal or that leads to blank and um then you try to scale go up a tier and then things get a little harder and you start to become more pro and blah 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 and there seems to be like this nice middle ground where you're just transitioning out of being an amateur and you're just doing your first project that has a bit of investment in it where you can do like your best work and you're completely zen, you don't have much of an ego, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. And that's a hard thing to maintain. That's why I think that like 
it's you a, see it in director film directors most of their early work is their best stuff bands most of their, their they, first they teach you they teach you about that in early video games it's all selecting difficulty level mm. right like if you figure out that you can play life on i can take it then you play life on i can take it and you don't go up to i am death incarnate right you don't ever go up to the nightmare difficulty mm. you find a place where it what you're doing and your your creative process works and don't try and scale it up unless it naturally goes that way. Don't scale it up into, unless it just completely happens organically because yeah. every time you try and scale an idea or like a strategy that works at one level up to the next one uh, and force it, it's just going to fall apart. It's going to fail. Right. Um, and you're going to find yourself maybe jaded by the situation like, oh, I, I, I put all my time and, and uh, energy into this idea and trying to make it like the biggest thing in my life and it yeah. failed. And then you're going to be really afraid of trying that thing again. Whereas if you just waited, you just took your time and stayed at that level that you were enjoying some moderate success mm-hmm. and still happy, it would have all happened naturally. And you'll, like, you'll come to uh, the level you need to be at. You yeah. don't need to force yourself higher ever. Mm. One, of the, one of the ideas that um, Seth Godin um, has is he recommends if you are lucky enough to find yourself in a position where you have a knack for um, self-discovery, honesty, generosity, where you can make um, something remarkable, it's best to, like, let somebody else monetize it. Like, if you hit on something that, like, is a massive kind of thing and becomes viral or whatever, give it to somebody else that's good at monetizing and then stay on that path of, like, continuing to experiment continuing having fun, continuing doing things. Don't get too hung up on one of your ideas. Yeah, because it can, you know, a simple idea can dominate a life if you, if you, if you don't, um, I think that, careful. I think that's an interesting, uh, a parallel to your, your Soma screenplay mm. where, you know, like the meme trade is sort of, uh, when a good idea comes about, it's usually not the person who came up with it who's going to be able to implement it the best. Right. And there's like a dozen other companies or organizations or people who can take that idea and really turn it into something that will shine. Yeah. And everyone can benefit, including the creator. And so all too often someone creates a product and then spends their whole life uh, trying to perfect it and trying to put it out and never succeeds. Mm. And then we humanity ends so- up losing out on on a great idea right because the right person didn't have it in their hands Mm -hmm. people are very very possessive about their ideas and that's something that like patent and copyright and trademark has made worse it's uh, worse than the problem of people being overly possessive of ideas everyone wants to make a billion dollars off their idea and they don't want to see anyone else make a dime off of it they don't want to see anyone else get the credit even if it's an idea that's going to improve people's lives Mm -hmm. it's like oh i came up with this amazing thing that skinny jeans that was me yeah, or like I came up with something like I'm thinking, you know, life saving or like life changing. Mm. You know, I came up with this incredible design for a wheelchair that like, you know, is super nimble and it's like a smart wheelchair. Um, but I don't have the money to develop it right now or the team behind it. So I'm just going to hold on to the copyright. I'm not going to give the design to anybody. I'm going to wait until I can pull it off. And then it never fucking happens. Never and all the people who could have had that wheelchair that nimbly yeah. gets them around have to wait until somebody else fucking yeah. figures it out. And they're just taking, making a, a parallel, like, it's not as dramatic, but you'll see it in your friends, right? Like, some people have such brilliant potential, and you just see, like, this self-destructive habit where, like, you know they're not going to finish that thing. You know that, that uh, you know, or um, 
sometimes are you talking about me jesse no 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 <laughs> like go to if you if you had gone to art school you'd see all sorts of people like it's very rare for the most talented person at art school to amount to anything for whatever reason the the hard work the hard workers when you spot somebody who's just willing to like bop their head against the wall until they come with the solution the ones that like don't quit they always outproduce the people that are naturally are just gifted. naturally inclined yeah yeah there's some sort of block and what i was going to say is um it's it's always weird like when you run into somebody and they're able to spot a talent in you that you don't recognize as being your talent cuz a lot of times like our talent doesn't align with the stuff that we're interested in doing yeah, right? it's like, very strange. It's a very kind of funny thing. Like a lot of times somebody will get hung up on the idea that they really want to be a blank. They really want to be a, um, a stereo technician or they really want to be a pro mountain climber or something. And they'll run into friends and they're just like, you know, you're fucking hilarious. Why don't you be a stand up comedian or something yeah. instead? And you're like, oh, I don't see myself doing that. Like I'd be insecure about like my teeth or blank, you know, there's all sorts of like excuses and stuff that we have for our own identities like we self-edit and say like i want to be this type of person a lot of the time without getting a lot of feedback and yeah. with not even like doing a lot of self-examinations like like what actually makes me happy am i do am i happy working at this computer for 17 18 hours like rotoscoping animation frame by frame what what am i actually getting out of this like because if you're honest with yourself you'll say like the things you really live for are you know, going and hanging out with interesting people and just talking, you know, you right. get like more of a buzz off of that and you feel more alive and you find yourself like more active and um, being a, a social part of like the city and stuff. Whereas, you know, the alternative, like you have this kind of these odd, like uh, self-destructive romantic illusions about like the tortured artist who like is holed up in his his office and working all these crazy hours and then they come out with like this beautiful statement that everybody like bows down in front of yeah but it doesn't usually happen that way especially with the internet the internet is making um creative work um it's expecting creative work to be more immediate um more uh, deep uh and to to respect people's attention Right. You know, if you've got something to say, tell us what it is. Sum it up quickly. Don't waste our time. We don't want you to, like, sit in your, in your castle making Fabergé eggs and then expect us to celebrate you. We want you to, to be honest, to be real, and to be generous with, like, your insights on Shit or get off life. the pot, so to speak, yeah, you know? Totally. Like, just uh, going for it. I don't know. It's uh, something that I think... Now, especially with the internet being around so long, people are really starting to get it. Mm. You know, it, even just the podcasting boom of the last couple of years. Yeah. Um, it's just like, yeah, it's it's really, it's not, you don't have to sit around and make this incredible polished pro, uh, project. You know, you're not making fucking uh, Gladiator, you know. No. You're, you're making a podcast. You've got some things to say. It. It's not going to get much better than the first time you do it. Yeah. And like just kind of doing it organically. If you need to make edits here and there, go for it. Mm -hmm. But uh, people want one every single week. And yeah. the, the longer their wait for one, you know, if Comedy Bang Bang wasn't doing it weekly or sometimes twice a week, if it was like, you know, Comedy Bang Bang took a few weeks 
people would start replacing that void and in their be life. Piss. The fans would be pissed. They'd be pissed to be like, why is there no new episodes? And then they'd start filling that void in their life with other comedy podcasts mm-hmm. because there are a fucking plethora of them. Yeah. And then by the time they they got their shit together and started creating content again or put out whatever content they'd been secretly working on, yeah. people would fewer people would care. They'd still have an audience, but fewer people would care. And so uh, just being prolific has become the most important thing about being an artist now. Which Can is you what, sustain... Can you just keep going? Can you write and write and write and write? Can you produce and produce and produce and produce? And if you can't, you might not be able to keep up with the way that information works now because, like, things things have – you know how, like, it used to be if the 15 minutes of fame was the big thing? You get, get 15 minutes. You get, like, five seconds Five now. seconds. You get a five-second window of fame, and then you have to try and get back there, mm-hmm. like, over and over and over and over. You have – like, if you if you don't keep expanding on that five seconds, if you don't keep people's attention – and five seconds later, release something new that they're constantly paying attention to you. Yeah. Once you've gotten past that gap, there's no going back. You're never going to have that growing audience again. They're going to start replacing you with whatever else is more prolific and more in their face and more current, mm-hmm. talking about current things. Yeah. I do think that um, thinking about... I think it's important to preface what you just said because I agree with all of it, with the idea that... Uh, the reason it, it feels so hot is because it's a revolutionary time. Mm-hmm. Um, you're you're definitely right that people have to really respect the privilege of having people's attention. Because if you go back to TV thinking where you're like, I'm a big deal now, so I'm only going to let people listen to my podcast or watch my show if they pay me twenty nine ninety nine a month and they go to this certain website. Yeah, you immediately try and start monetizing this your 5 seconds of fame. You'll people will will flee. They'll just go like, "You know what? You abused the the privilege of my attention and I'm going to take it somewhere else." And there's uh, there's like just all these different like meme but, actors from YouTube that I could l- equate that to. Like yeah, the yeah. chocolate rain guy. That dude, he had everyone's attention and then the very next thing he did was a commercial for Dr Pepper. And everyone was like, fuck this guy. He, we, ha- we gave him our attention and we're like, this guy's the coolest guy ever. What a nice voice. And then the first thing he did was sell out to Dr. Pepper and try and sell me a soft drink. Yeah. So everyone stopped paying attention. Right. That's it. That's how fast it can happen. If you start getting an inflated ego, you're fucked. Right. You're completely fucked. What were you going to yeah. say? Sorry. Oh, I was going to say, um, I do think that the hyperactivity that's going on now will cool off. I think what's, what's ha- happening right now is there's a mad scramble for tribes like people are being inundated with information but i don't think that that's a that's a place that we can all live in forever right i think that eventually um there's a uh, these there's plateaus where you learn things about yourself and you eventually decide to adopt a lifestyle that aligns with the kind of stuff that you enjoy listening to and um, participating in because I think that th- there's definitely another uh, tier that the internet is. Um, the internet's already a two-way medium, but I think it's going to become more so. Yeah. I think that like the more people who are contributing now and getting their 15 minutes of fame, they have an opportunity to form um, a lasting bond with a lot of the people that have um, given their work um, attention right. and enjoyed it. Um, but it's, it's, it's like forming a family, right? Like you need to, if you look at what, um, say Mark Frauenfelder's done with the make movement, right? right? Yeah. Gradually 
year by year, they, they're growing a community of people that have adopted a, um, a lifestyle where they're raising families that are um, kind of uh, making that maniac mansion type of um, fictional reality reality. Yeah. Like houses with robots and like 3D printers and um, families that don't watch television. They like uh, do soldering projects and, and stuff together or yeah. like um, experiment with apps or Being creative, do a podcast. Yeah. Um, that kind of like multimedia type of thing um, based around the idea that like the world is designed by people no smarter than you and you can contribute in the direction that your reality goes. Yeah. Um, they come together once a year at these maker fairs and they show off the robots and things that they built. Um, and it doesn't have a center, right? Like there are people that organize the website and publish the magazine and put on the fair, but they're not the stars. No, the, the people who are in the community are going to that place to meet each other. Yeah. And it could just as easily be any one of them yeah. that succeeds over mm-hmm. the rest of them. And uh, and for how long, right? Someone else will just come along and make something more impressive. And it, it's a very, it's like a natural blending of of a supportive community, but also of uh, a friendly competition mm-hmm. where um, people are able to come together and share their ideas uh, but they're also given a sort of friendly, um, only moderate competitive platform where, you know, someone will design a robot or like something to print on a 3D printer and someone else will immediately see like, oh, that's a great idea, but there's like one little design flaw. Mm-hmm. And they'll come out with their version and say, you know, disrespect, like very much respect to the f- the person who originally came up with this idea, but like, you know, my logic saw a problem and I fixed it so here's an even better version and then someone might say oh that's good but what if you just changed this part of it yeah, yeah, yeah. and then five or six versions what I, think, line. I think what you're missing though is that um, I think that that competition is lessened um, when you arrive at a space where nothing's for sale like it's just a show and tell right so like there's an intellectual um, curiosity um, there's a the, a stimulating thing about being able to contribute and going the next level with, yeah. with something that you saw. Even but sh- it's show a conversation, right? Like, yeah. um, uh, you don't necessarily have to be uh, approaching it like you're going to monetize the thing and turn no. it into a product. Like, it can just be next year, I'm going to, my robot's going to be a little bit better, blah, blah, blah. We have like a friendly competition that's going, the intent is to learn and to put on a really great experience for all of the people that are coming to the thing. Right. You know? Yeah, to really just... Kind of uh, like what you had going on with the house shows, right? Like, there was very little, like, kind of financial um, incentive to do any of that. No. But all the people involved, like the bands and the fans, they appreciate having that space. And I'm sure that the, the experiences that you had at those shows and the people that you met and the, and the, the conversations and the, um, the fun that you had yeah, vastly outweighed the few hundred dollars or whatever that you made. Oh yeah, for sure. And uh, you know, there were some shows where I ended up losing money because I just I I overextended myself. I got too much booze, or like you know, there was something else going on that I wasn't paying attention to, and realized I'm splitting crowds. But in the long run, like there's not a single one I regret. Like in you know, at the end of the day, when I was finally done with that house and done with the shows, I look back on it really fondly and say like through all the hardship and through all the bullshit I had to go through, it was still really fun. I met some of the greatest people 
I've ever met. And I'm really glad to, to kind of say that for a while I was giving people a regular place to come see a show in like a non-bar environment somewhere where they could come and feel really comfortable and really like connect with the bands and like see that I was just like one guy with a house with a basement that had decided like, Hey, there's like, I know some cool bands and like, if you give me five bucks, I'll bring them all here and you can come watch them play in my basement. I'll take the risk, you know? And I just hope that, you know, it's there every once in a while, there'd be like kind of younger kids coming out. There's like a 16 year old who sort of like found his way out to a couple of the shows and uh, what I really hope is just some of them see what I did and try and do it better. Yeah. You know, get a get a fucking better house and do it better. Do it more regularly. Figure out a place where you can do it all the time. Like, figure out where I went wrong and where things, like, didn't work for me and where I overextended myself. And, and try and replicate it, but do a better job. Yeah. Because that's all I was doing. What did you think about, was it band seed? Band, oh, yeah, the, the touring seeding thing. Yeah. yeah. I think that's pretty genius. I think that's... I think it's good. I think that um, they it would be cool for you to reach out and do just a, a blog post, like a little essay on Ford plant and the stuff that you learned by putting on your house shows and just kind of a, a, a beat by beat kind of thing about like what kind of space, how much space you need to put on a show, um, how to get in touch with bands, yada, 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 as kind of like a, a starting seed for anybody who's interested in joining that network. Yeah. Cause I think that that's all, all they're missing. They're still involving, the middlemen who run the venues like they're thinking that they're going to um, combine the audience with the thing and then they'll hire out whoever's cheapest to run the venue and I think that their site would be greatly um, enriched if they could find satellite places like somebody's basement to put yeah. on shows for anybody who's uh, not aware of what we're talking about I, I forget what it's called um, band seed sounds right, but I'm not sure if that's it, but it was basically an idea of reinventing the touring structure. So rather than a band or, uh, or venues sort of having to reach out to bands and say, Oh, we'll bring you out. Um, there would be some sort of like central social network where the fans could say, Hey, I'll pay 10 bucks for this band to come out and play in June. And a whole bunch of other people would be like, yeah, and like it and say like, yeah, I'd pledge five bucks to bring them out. And that way, rather than uh, it being a crapshoot for the promoters where they're just trying to bring the same bands out or trying to put together these all-star lineups that are going to sell tickets, the fans make the decisions and they say, hey, well, we want to see this band or this band hasn't been here recently enough. And they put the money forward and mm -hmm. then the promoter has no excuse to say no. There's no reason because if all they care about, which is for the most part in big cities in Toronto, my experience is the, the promoter and the bar manager, what they fucking care about is selling booze and making yeah. money. And if they can know for sure, then there's no question to get that band out. Then a band can say, listen, we know for sure that 100 people said they'd come out and pay seven bucks for the show. Yeah. So why don't you put us on? Yeah. I think it's genius. And it, it'll, they'll, it'll meet with backlash. It'll be probably not the first uh, platform that succeeds at doing it, right? It'll come and go, I think, just because something that ambitious and that different from the from the way it works now is going to just be met with such high resistance and with and people are so afraid of change that it's not going to work the first time. But it's setting the tone for future touring methods, you know, for the way yeah. we might book bands in the next 20 years. Yeah. It needs a, it's something that needs a hub. <clears throat> the thing that I was suggesting, the way I could see an opportunity is if you know anybody who's just starting out as a touring band, there's a lot of gigs that people play where they get like 50 to a hundred dollars like for the night. Right. And if you are aware of those economics, it doesn't take 
uh, too much of incentive to say like, hey, why don't you play Branford or whatever? I've got like 25 friends here that love your band and we want to give you $25 each. That's what's the math on that? more money than they'd make more money than they make (laughs) doing like a a toronto show or whatever it is and so it completely restructures the touring schedule where instead of saying like well i need to go here here and here because this is where all the people are right it switches it and goes like where are are we gonna where are we gonna visit our fans yeah and how can we do cool things like when i first um saw arcade fire in like 2004 2005 yeah we saw it at the hamilton underground and there yeah. was like 25 people at the show, yeah. right? And those kids fucking sang their hearts out for that empty venue. Yeah. And we were like, they're rock stars. Like, that was incredible. Yeah. Because it takes like a really special performer to be able to really try when there's nobody listening. Right. Right. So all and too do often. something where like that change of position that we were talking about before, where instead of like being bummed out, oh, we didn't like pack the venue. It's like celebrate the people who came. Yeah. Because if you win them over, they'll tell other people and it'll spread. And the 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 way to make that work and the way to kind of bring that is to to adopt that sort of smaller town mentality where it's like you're not going to get that 200 person turnout. Mm. So you're happy with what you get. Hey, we brought a band in and 40 people came out. That's fucking incredible. Mm-hmm. Like that's way more of than all I the expected. things they could have been doing. They right? came out, right? And uh yeah, it's just a appreciate your audience and try your best no matter like all too often a band will go and they'll just be so miserable like we had to wait blah 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 this many hours to play and there was fucking nobody there blah blah blah. where's my rider man where's my yeah and it's just like you know shut the fuck up if there's even a person in that room that's standing there listening to you anticipating you like playing music I know it's like that cheesy fucking cliche of like if you can move one person like if you can impress one person but it's not untrue that person probably has friends and that person's going to be really passionate they've taken the time to stand there and listen to you play music so fucking play your heart out play your heart out and they'll say they'll go to their friends and say hey i saw this band last night and i was the only one there and they killed it they killed it for just me we should all go next time yeah that's that would work way more than like you know if you if there's only one person and then you go uh, thanks everybody for coming out tonight and make a bunch of ironic statements about how you're disappointed about no one's there. That person's going to be like, this band's a bunch of fucking assholes and they don't even care that I'm here. Mm-hmm. So fuck them. I'm never going to talk about yeah. them. And it's like, well, can I have my money back? Because you embarrassed me for even showing up. Yeah. Um, what, do you want to play to a fucking empty a room? Fraud. Go for it. All right. Okay. Um, but yeah, yeah. I think that one thing that's great about the internet is it it has a way of taking the wind out of the sails out of people who because those people won't be able to stick around right yeah. like you you can't hack it like the the economics of it are that uh it's unlikely for you to break through and to be a monster success so if you're not doing it for the right reasons and you're having a miserable time being a trying to be a rock star then give it up give it up do something else start a podcast that's probably a good uh, spot to, to end on. That's, gonna, that's what we did. We got we to gotta do some singing. Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> I no. wanted Nate Dog, damn it. I requested oh, Nate Dog. Listen, in post, I'm putting Nate Dog all over this this fucking episode. Oh, but you do such a mean Nate, Nate Dog. You can acapella it. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe later I on. Came into, I came into work and I saw Cameron. 
And I was like, so let's hit the east side with the one on a mission. Try to find Mr. Warren G. And he was he was like, you know what? I just sung that at karaoke last night. It's like weird. That oh man, kind of. P- I, I feel like a connection. All the thi- all the things that I really liked, and I thought that I was the only like not the only one, but so so long after the fact, the only one who was listening to it all the time, like Bone Thugs and Harmony and Nate Dogg and Warren G and stuff like that. I walk by bars on Queen Street all the time, and they're just banging Bone Thugs. And the other day, I was walking past one of the Ethiopian places on Bloor Street, and just the loudest I've ever heard that song played, Crossroads, and everybody, <laughs> everyone inside was singing along to it, and it was beautiful. And I was just like. That bar wasn't packed. I think I just go in there and join them right now. No. Oh. Anyways, everybody, thanks for listening Wee! again. Boom, 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 Tell me what you're gonna do when there ain't nowhere to run. Just because for you, just because for you, what you gonna do when there ain't nowhere to hide? Just because for you, cause it's gonna come. It's after the fall party. Easy, easy, all kill Charlie. All right. I'm gonna miss everybody. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>